I felt very nervous about whether or not I knew where I was going and whether or not I was going to make it back to my cabin that night. I was forced to legitimately consider the option of having to sleep there and eating the food I had and waiting until morning when I could see better. Anyone who spends time in the outdoors is going to lose their way at some point. While some people manage to get back on track, many rely on help from search and rescue crews to get home safely. According to the Government of Canada, there are approximately 15,000 search and rescue volunteers in this country. The Search and Rescue Volunteer Association of Canada says about 9,000 of those are ground search and rescue volunteers who provide search and rescue services both on land and over inland waters. Professional and volunteer search and rescue personnel provide help to more than 20,000 people per year in Canada. So why am I talking about this right now? Earlier this month, I posted a call out on Instagram for people to suggest future episode topics. Among many excellent suggestions I received was one by a listener named Colton Johnstone that simply said, getting lost at night, been there, and it sucked. A conversation ensued, and Colton told me he had taken a short night hike up Killarney Provincial Park's crack trail for some night sky photography one fall when he lost the trail. What followed was an anxiety-inducing hour and a half of trying to find his way out of the woods in the dark, complete with an injury he still bears the scar from today. On this episode of Catch Me Outside, Colton will tell his story of getting lost in the woods, and then I'll be joined by Tom Gerwa, training director of Yellowknife Search and Rescue in the Northwest Territories. Tom has held many roles during his 15 years in the industry and has trained countless other search and rescue workers. Today, he'll share some of his insights into lost person behavior as well as some advice that should help outdoor adventurers avoid getting lost or at least improve their odds of being found. I loved all of your suggestions and I'm already lining up guests for January's episode, so please keep them coming. I'd also like to thank my first Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for investing in this podcast with me so I can continue to produce it and hopefully improve it as I go. Anyway, I'm Megan Dallaire. This is Catch Me Outside. And without further delay, let's get to it. Hi there, my name's Colton Johnstone. I'm a community scientist, nature photographer, and lifelong learner who loves to be outside photographing nature and sharing my experiences with others. I'm going to tell a story about a misadventure I had in Killarney Provincial Park. It was one evening I was visiting there in the fall. The leaves had started to turn colors, looking beautiful, and I decided I wanted to try and get some night photography from a really good landscape viewpoint. And so I decided that I was going to hike the crack, which is a major trail in Killarney. It's very popular. It's a difficult trail and it's often very busy, but I wanted to do it at night to get this beautiful landscape with stars and the fall colors in full force. I asked the people who I was with if anyone wanted to come along with me on this night hike and unfortunately, nobody was really interested. I decided I was still going to go on my own. In packing up my gear, I got lots of lights. I had four different flashlights, all with full batteries. I grabbed some food. I had some Mr. Noodles and some cookies to get me through the night, just in case. 
I got two bottles of water, and I had my camera gear. So I was fairly well equipped for what I was about to do. I had my cell phone fully charged. And so I made my way over to the crack and started hiking. If you've been on the crack before, you'll know that the first little while is very easy. It's smooth ground, and it's just walking through a forest. It's quite nice. And it's not until the latter half of the hike that you will start to go upwards and, and start to really climb. As I was going up, everything was going according to plan, and I got to the top finding all the trail markers fairly easily. As I got to the top, unfortunately, what I noticed is that clouds had rolled in. I had thought the forecast was going to be clear, and as you can imagine, for night photography, clouds aren't the best if you're trying to capture the stars. And so the shots I got that evening were nowhere near what I was hoping to accomplish. And so I was a little disappointed, but I stayed up there for about 45 minutes and made the best of the situation. If that had been the worst part of my night, that would have been totally fine. Things were about to take a turn for the worse for me. As I made my way down the quartzite clearing, things were still going according to plan. I was finding all of the trail markers. I started to feel like I was getting towards the bottom of the incline. I got a little bit disoriented. I found one trail marker and I couldn't seem to see which direction made the most sense to go in from there. I followed what looked to be a fairly well-worn trail and it kept going down the slope, which I assumed was what I needed to do. But eventually I came to a part of the trail where it looked less walked. I continued along for a minute to try and see where this led and I felt like I wasn't on the main trail anymore. Then the trail opened up and I found myself on the side of a lake. I had found Kakakis Lake, which was actually a great landmark to find because the trail does cross the far end of Kakakis Lake, so I knew I wasn't far off. I did, however, still need to find the trail. I made my way back up to the trail marker I had seen most recently, and I looked around from there, and I tried to walk off in a different direction. I followed another one of these offshoot-looking trails for a little while into the forest, and eventually it just fizzled out. probably should have turned around at this point, but I figured I wasn't far off because I was no more than 30 feet away from the point at the side of the lake. So I decided to continue walking through the forest for a little while. Now as I continued to walk, I started to feel like I wasn't getting anywhere. There was just forest and forest, and I had gone up and down a few hills. And so eventually I saw a rock outcrop that I decided to climb up to get some more cell reception and figure out exactly where I was. The cell reception in this area isn't great, but I was able to open Google Maps and take a look at approximately where I was, or at least where Google thought I was based on my poor reception. Looking around, it was just open rock face with forest around me on every side. I didn't really see any clear way to go. So I really was counting on Google Maps to be able to give me some insight as to which direction I needed to go off through the forest. I did a few slow turns to try and see if the app was keeping up with my movements and would therefore send me off in the direction I needed it to. And it seemed like it was working, so I pointed the phone in the direction that on the map looked like the end of the lake and I started walking. I went back into the forest and was going through there for quite some time and I was starting to feel nervous at this point because now I was nowhere near. I couldn't even get myself back to the original trail that I was on and I was kind of committed to bushwhacking until eventually I got back on track. 
Eventually, as I was walking through the forest, I came through a little dip and found the side of the lake again. In theory, this is a good thing because this is the main landmark that's going to get me back to the trail. However, I really still don't have any orientation. And when I flash my lights around, I can see the other side of the lake, but I really can't see down to the end where I'm trying to get to to cross with the trail. The forest by the lakeside had gotten pretty dense, and so I decided I was going to try and walk along the side of the lake and just follow it right to the end where I knew the trail would cross. And this had been going pretty well. It was a little marshy, and I did get some wet feet, but I was making a lot of progress and covering some ground along the side of the lake. After a couple minutes of this, I did see up in the forest that there was a rock outcrop about 45 feet high that was going along the side of the lake, and as I continued to walk, it was coming closer and closer to the shoreline until eventually I flashed my light forward, and I saw that indeed it went right out into the lake. One of my first thoughts is that walking all the way back along the shore where I'd come from was going to take a long time, and going out into the water seemed like it could be a really easy workaround for this situation. I flashed my light around the rock ledge trying to see how far I would have to make it in the water before I could get back onto the shoreline. I couldn't really tell so I decided to set down my stuff, take off my boots, and wade into the water to try and see exactly how much distance I was going to have to cover. Wading into the water, I was putting my arm on the ledge and walking through. It didn't seem like it was getting very deep, it was a little past my knees, but I still couldn't see where I needed to get to and I decided that it probably was going to be pretty reasonable. So I went back and I grabbed my stuff and I started wading into the water. As I got past where I had scoped out till, I noticed that the water continued to get deeper and I was now in up to about my waist. I'm pretty wet at this point and my backpack is pretty close to the water level. I decided it wasn't going to be worth the risk of falling in and ruining my camera gear. So I went back, I cut my losses, and I put on my boots... And I realized I was just going to have to walk back the way I'd come to try and find a way up to the top of that rock ledge to get past that point. As I'm walking along the shoreline, I'm looking up at this rock ledge thinking maybe I'll be able to find a spot where I can just climb up and, and save myself a whole bunch of this backtracking. I do actually see this little slit in the rocks that looked like it could be easily climbed. However, there was a bunch of dense bush and some incline for me to get to there. But by this point, the adrenaline was pumping through my veins. It felt like it was the light at the end of a dark tunnel. So I crashed through that bush, making my way up. And as I was doing so, I made a misstep, not paying attention to my footing. And I stepped into a hole. And as that happened, my shin smashed off of the rock edge. And yeah, it hurt, but I was so laser focused on this shortcut that I had found that I was determined to just get up there. So I kept climbing and as I got up to it, I realized that this was a 15 foot straight incline right up with a steep slope below and all kinds of trees with sharp branches sticking out. I realized in that moment, attempt to climb this and I fall as I'm going up. I will hit my head, probably be knocked out, and I'm in an isolated area off trail where I might not be found for days. This is a dangerous situation, and climbing this rock face would have been a huge gamble. It's moments like this when you realize that you need to always be thinking about your personal safety while you're out in the wilderness. Saving time doesn't really mean anything if you end up hurting yourself.
So I knew this wasn't the solution and I was going to have to continue to bush crash until eventually I could climb up this, this rock outcrop in a safe way. After another five minutes of bush crashing, eventually I was able to find a way up this rock outcrop. Up it was fairly open and so I decided to use Google again to try and orientate myself and point myself in the right direction. I knew that if I continued to follow the lake and if I could see the lake, I would eventually come to the end where the trail crossed over. Once I felt like I had myself pointed in the right direction again, I started going down into the forest and bush crashing some more. Eventually I came to a bit of a creek that was running down towards the water and I remembered that not far off of the trail when you were going up one part, there is a creek that runs alongside the trail. I figured if I continued to find creeks, eventually I'd find the one that was right beside the trail and get myself back on track. And sure enough, after passing three of these creeks, eventually I walked past one and the trail just opened up right in front of me. I saw a trail marker behind me. I saw a trail marker in front of me. I just magically was back on track. This whole experience happened within the span of about an hour and a half various points in that journey, I felt very nervous about whether or not I knew where I was going and whether or not I was going to make it back to my cabin that night. I was forced to legitimately consider the option of having to sleep there and eating the food I had and waiting until morning when I could see better. Now luckily it didn't come to that and I started to make my way back along the trail towards my car. I looked down at my shins and realized that where I had fallen before, I had put a huge gouge into my shin and there was a big trail of blood going all the way down into my socks. It really shows the power of adrenaline because I was so panicked and so focused on that potential shortcut that I didn't even notice how badly I'd split open my shin. To this day I have a doozy of a scar in that spot even though in that moment I didn't feel a thing. The lesson to be learned is that even if you feel like you're prepared for what you're about to do, especially at night, Things can go wrong, and so you should always have a backup plan and be prepared for an emergency. I learned a lot about myself and how I can be better prepared for my future hikes that evening, and I hope to not get into another situation where I feel that lost. Um, but yeah, so now that now that we're actually recording, uh, how are you, Tom? I'm old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing quite well. Yeah. You've been out adventuring. I think you told me um, yesterday that you had just come back from a trip. Uh, I came back from a trip from Edmonton, but that was a driving trip through some incredibly bizarre weather. But oh. I am planning on going out in the bush on Friday. Oh, uh, wow. Okay. For, for a three-day three, three day trip. Nice. That'll just be like a, a personal trip, like a pleasure trip? They're all pleasure at, oh, okay. at this age point in my life. So it's just me and the dog going to go out in the bush and uh, look at the stars. Lovely. Oh, that's that's awesome. So, you know, since we've been talking a little bit about, you know, the context of, of you being in Yellowknife, can you tell me a bit about like your history with Yellowknife Search and Rescue? Um, I believe you're a rescue trainer. Well, I do many things I, and I have filled uh, probably every role the organization has since I started. But I'm currently the training director for Yellowknife Search and Rescue. So my job largely is to either provide training directly to our members or arrange to have training provided. 
So we teach a basic searcher course. We teach a team leader course. We do lost person behavior. Uh, we teach people how to use GPSs for uh, searches as opposed to just kind of cross-country navigation or recreational use. And we do uh, regular drills, which are uh, intended to keep people from getting rusty. So, you know, right. we, we do probably three to five searches a year here, which I think would be fairly uh common across the country for small search teams. So we have about 50 members. Uh, so if you're doing three to five searches a year, you do have to keep the skill sets up to up to snuff. And a lot of our training yeah. involves doing that kind of stuff. That that makes sense. I mean, <laughs> just thinking about, I mean, I, I don't know if this is one of the skills that you have to keep sharp, but like I have, I have tried to learn orienteering and, and using a map and compass and <laughs> factoring in the decla declamation or, or declination. Or, and that's not really something that you can do without practicing and keeping that skill sharp. So, Yeah, we spend a lot of time uh, teaching that particular skill, uh, map and compass work for cross-country navigation, as well as uh, in, a, in an applied sort of search context. Uh, but to be honest, once people have got the map and compass skills down, we move directly into using GPS units because right. they totally eliminate, you know, 99% of the stuff you hate about map and compass. Oh, for but sure. But you still have to have those basics to, you know, to, to function in the bush. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And And so what brought you into search and rescue? How did you end up in this field? Well, a long time ago when I was much younger uh, and doing entirely different things, uh, there was a newspaper story in Yellowknife about a fellow who had gone on a hike with his dogs. Uh, darkness overtook him. The temperature dropped down to, I think it was in the range of minus 40, which is a popular mythical temperature here in the north. Um, the guy was stuck overnight, he went through the ice, and people had a hard time figuring out where he was. And then the search response was kind of interesting, because the people who went looking for him were, to say the least, inappropriately dressed for, the, for their adventure. But they found the guy, and, and all was good. So I contacted the, the local search group and I said, hey, can you kind of give me a, a bit of a story here on what happened? And as they started telling me the story, I, I said to them, you know, I, I can tell you right now where the guy went missing and likely what he was doing when he went missing. And I find it surprising that it took you guys as long as it did to, to find him. And that was kind of was the trigger. I didn't get involved in search and rescue right at that point in time. But a couple of years later, when my schedule got a little bit freer, I joined the team and been doing it ever since. So it was like, you know, I'm sure a lot of people, it's a case of um, an incident happens. It, it kind of uh, triggers a response. They're interested in it. And then later on, join a team and stick with it for a while. That's that's so interesting. Yeah, that you you kind of felt you had that natural in, inclination um, and could sort of see. Yeah. And so um, uh, getting a little, I don't know, maybe a little philosophical here, or maybe for you, it's more of a practical question. But was there anything that you wished that you had known about search and rescue before you got into the field? 
there's a lot of knowledge-based stuff that you have to kind of pick up as you go. I mean, at the time that I got interested in search and rescue, I already had really good sort of uh, navigation skills. I was used to being in the bush at, you know, any temperature, any season. I was quite comfortable out there, but I wasn't really clued into a lot of the other areas of search and rescue that you have to learn. Like there's different search types, different techniques. Uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier in our preliminary to this interview, lost person behavior is a whole kind of subject in and of itself. Yeah. It's a big part of search and rescue. So, you know, that kind of stuff is what's been interesting and wasn't expected. Yeah. Well, and lost, lost person behavior is kind of the thing that I'm you know, most curious about here, but I guess going sort of step by step before we get to, you know, what, what people tend to do when they're lost, what are some steps that people can take prior to a, a trip to sort of decrease their odds of getting lost, assuming they're planning to follow a trail? <laughs> well, I, I would start off and kind of go back a couple of steps mm -hmm. before I kind of talk about that particular question. I would say to people, you know, experienced or otherwise, uh, you know, if you can find a hiking club or a group mm. or a paddling club or a paddling group that go out regularly who are looking for, you know, a novice or someone to take with them, uh, join that group and become their best friend because you'll start gaining a lot of experience that uh, you, you may not have initially. Yeah. Uh, and there's other things, too, that, people don't often think about when they're hiking, but I would certainly suggest uh, if you're hiking throughout the seasons that you look at some type of wilderness survival training, uh, predator awareness training, like what to do if you see a bear or a lynx or a moose or a bison. Right. Uh, you, you've already mentioned map and compass, so those are skills you need. And, uh, and with that is... Uh, you know, developing cross-country navigation skills as opposed to, say, just staying on a trail. Right. And, you know, and we also have smaller predators like bees and wasps and things that can cause a huge problem and, and also plants that are in your area. Those are things that, you know, you tend to develop as you go along, but those are things I would always keep in the back of my mind as things you want to, you know, pick up some skills in those areas. Right. And another thing that is really important that I think people may not think about is learning how to read a trail. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've been down to the Gatineau Park, which I'm sure you may have been in I at have some point in your life. Many times. And a lot, a lot of those trails are like highways. Yep. But at the same time, there's a lot of those trails that when you look at them, you think, oh my God, I could never follow that trail because it's just so indistinct. But there's a sign that says there's a trail there. Right. So learning how to pick up trails and recognizing when you're on one as well as when you're crossing one is, is a very valuable skill to, to have and to practice and, and keep up on. And the last thing I would say is if you're going to buy gear, know how to use it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, you know, people will probably, everybody carries a pocket knife or a Leatherman, but do you know how to use all of the pieces and components of that. Right. And if you don't, you should perhaps uh, spend some time uh, doing that. 
Can you open the knife without cutting yourself? Um, <laughs> Can you open it when your hands are freezing? Yeah. You know, uh, fall out of a canoe going down a river late in the fall and uh, just suddenly realize that things that you think you should be able to do are, are quite challenging to be able to do. Right, right. Okay, so so now let's say, you know, our hypothetical hiker, canoeist, whoever is um, is about to leave on a trip. It could be a day trip. It could be a weekend trip, we'll say. Not not a really big expedition. What are some things that they can do to, to you know, decrease their odds of getting lost? So, you know, I, I think I threw some examples out um, in my email. I don't know if any of those were right, but um, what would you suggest? So not so much in terms of what to do if you get lost. Right. But if we just think about one of the probably the, the most commonly suggested things you can do is is prepare a trip plan okay this is where i'm going to go these are the people that are coming with me if anybody has a medical condition or concerns uh, any issues at all these are what they are this is where we're going to go this is when we expect to return and this is what we want you to do if we don't show up on time or if you don't get a call from us advising us that we're whatever the situation is. Right. So that trip plan is a, is a very, very important uh, thing to have. And it doesn't have to be a 30 page document. It can be a little sticky pad stuck to your refrigerator saying to your partner, Hey, this is where we're going. And this is what we want you to do. If you're looking for something a little bit more sophisticated adventure smart, which is a Canadian program, has a, uh, a smartphone app that you can use to, you know, prepare your uh, trip plan. You don't have to, to write it down with a pencil. So that would be my first piece of advice. Okay. Uh, the second piece of advice would be do a map study of the area you intend to travel in. Uh, if you have paper maps, great. If you have ever used a uh, Google Earth, which is an aerial satellite-based uh, program, uh, you'd want to take that area that you're going to be traveling in and really study it and have a look at it. You know, even if it's a place you've been to before or been to in the past, you'll start to see things that you didn't see before. Right. Uh, so I would certainly recommend doing a map study. And while you're doing a map study, start looking at anything about that area that you think could be a problem. Maybe there are cliffs. Maybe it's a frozen lake, like Lake Ontario, and you can't see across it. So if there's blowing wind, how am I going to navigate through it? But you basically want to start looking at your map and saying, you know, this is where I want to go. This is how I think I'm going to uh, travel to my destination. Uh, but are there any things in between that could cause me some problems? Right. And the last thing would be to know your limits, your physical limits, your sort of, uh, I guess, psychological limits. Uh, do you panic? How do you react to stress? Uh, can you walk 100 kilometers in a day? I'm sure 90% <laughs> of your viewers, you know, walk that in an hour. 100? But uh, <laughs> I'm... I've certainly met people who've made fantastic claims about how far they can walk cross country yeah. with a full pack. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, but you know, knowing your limits and, and, and in many cases too, 
if you're going to go on a hike, even if it's a two-hour hike with a friend, what do you want to get out of that hike? Mm. Do you want to look at the plants, the flowers, the sky, the trees, the animals? And, and in many cases, that takes time. Right. So your two-hour hike might be a four-hour hike. And what do you do if uh, at four hours it's dark and scary out and you forgot to bring a flashlight and your big lighter is not working anymore? So kind of, you know, do a bit of a self-assessment and see where you fit in the world. I I have run into many hikers deep in the backcountry who really would have benefited from that information. So thank you for that. And then, um, you know, kind of along the line, you, you just sort of alluded to one piece of gear when you when you said, you know, you talked about the hypothetical hiker relying on their BIC. What are some essential items um, kind of everyone should make sure that they're bringing weather? I mean, of course, if you're if you're backpacking, you're going to want your shelter and and and, you know, all of your meals and things like that. But what are some of the essentials that people should always have, whether they're going for, you know, a day hike or, or a couple days? Uh, they're not really a lot. Yeah. Uh, generally, if I'm going out for a day hike, I will take a map and a compass mm-hmm. and my GPS as well as spare batteries because uh, it is nice to know where you are and because uh, you can certainly wander off the trail. Yeah, I always take a first aid kit. And it doesn't have to be a giant one. It can be a small one with a blister pack in it. Uh, maybe some uh, mosquito medication. Uh, food and water. Uh, just whatever you would take on your on your day hike. I, I would suggest, though, with water that people be careful. Because water is not light. It's actually quite heavy. Mm-hmm. So you should have a, a pretty good sense of how much water you're going to consume. Mm-hmm. And any medications you you require, and spare clothes, yeah, which kind of depends on the season. So for you know a little day hike where you're going out for three or four hours, maybe a little bit longer, you probably don't need much more than that. Okay, would uh, would you suggest like a flashlight or a headlamp just in case it it does get dark while you're out? If I was planning to be out or thought there was a likelihood I'd be out after dark, I'd certainly have a, uh, a flashlight yeah. or a headlamp would be a better choice, yeah. actually, I think. Um, but, you know, you, this is why I was saying at the very start of this, you sort of have to start going out and gaining that experience and knowledge right. and getting a sense of, you know, what is comfortable for you to have with you. Yeah. I mean, there's... There's tons of things you can take. Like in the summertime up here, everybody carries an air horn and bear spray. Mm, yes. Because we live in an area where there's lots of bears. And uh, that's day hike or weekend trip or whatever. You, you've got it with you. Right. But, you know, for the average person going out for a quick hike, you don't need to take a lot. Right. Yeah. No, and for... And I think you, you mentioned people going out with like as backpackers. Yeah. Um, I mean, the only thing I would do, the only thing I would do different other than, you know, say using common sense is water is a very significant thing in the bush. And most of us find that there's no water when we need it the most. And the creek that you're looking for can't be found or, or it's a river. Uh, but at the same time, no one is going to carry, you know, 20 liters of water with them in the bush. So I'd certainly take a filter, mm. take 
purification tablets, a small stove so that you can boil it if you have to, because uh, water is quite significant. Yeah. And as you mentioned, a tent, a sleeping bag, and that'll depend on the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're going out in the wintertime, you may want to throw on a, an avalanche type shovel with that. So you have to dig around to set up your tent. Yeah. Or if you're going to build some kind of an emergency shelter, that's handy. And definitely a headlamp for after dark with spare batteries. Yeah. And you should be able to change those batteries in the dark because it'll, your lamp will die, it'll be pitch black, and you'll be alone, and you won't know how to change the batteries. Mm, so point. practice at home in your closet with the lights out. Good point. Yeah, kind of practicing for these weird contingencies, um, doing it with your numb hands and that kind of thing. Good point. Good point. You know, I mean, there's tons of other stuff you can take with you, and I'm sure oh, yeah. anybody can do a Google search or go find a YouTube video with these prepper-type people who have thousands of pieces of gear they like to display, uh, and you'll get some ideas. But for most people, it's common sense. Okay, so now we're we're kind of moving into the section that I'm very kind of excited about personally, which is like the hiker behavior during, during the hike and the kinds of behavior that can, can lead to somebody getting lost or prevent them from getting lost. And then, you know, the kinds of behavior that can help somebody get found or make it harder for them to get found. So, so let's say like our hypothetical hiker is, is, is on the trail. What are some things that they should, should or should not do to ensure that they, you know, can kind of keep their bearings and stay, stay on the trail. If somebody's on an established trail and they know where the trail goes and they don't leave the trail, they'll never be lost. They may not know exactly where they are on the trail, but they won't be lost. And, and, and I think that's an, an incredibly important kind of psychological point. Um, in teaching many search and rescue courses, one of the things that people come up with, they say, well, what if I'm lost? Well, if we know that we're south of a highway, then we travel north and we'll come back to the highway and we won't be lost anymore. Mm-hmm. So if you start to kind of frame where you're at in general, and then usually it's a case of people be simply being disoriented and they right. don't know exactly where they are right now. And you just kind of tough it out. Okay. But <laughs> the, probably the most common thing that will happen to somebody who's on a trail is they'll see something they want to take a picture of or something they want to look at and they'll get turned around and suddenly you have no idea where you're going. Right. So that's a possibility. Uh, I guess the simplest advice would be don't leave the trail, (laughs) but of course that's not going to happen. If you're with a friend, stay within calling distance. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I can always be calling to you saying, hey, Megan, can you hear me? And if you can, you can come back to where I am over on the trail. Right. And that includes, you know, it could be something you know, as simple as somebody having a basic human need to leave the trail mm-hmm. and do stuff. That happens. Um, it does. Um, uh, another thing that will happen is, is that, you know, assuming that somebody has done their map study and they've got the trail, they know where they're going to go and they realize that there are various intersections along the trail that could take them to a different place. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have map decision points. So every time you come to an intersection of the trail, you make a decision. Do I keep going in my current direction, turn left or right or what have you? The other type of decision point is where it just sort of pops up. 
Mm. It could be an animal trail. It could be something that looks like a trail, but you're not sure. Mm. But because you're daydreaming or not quite focused, you scoot off to the left or right and end up probably about 100 meters into the bush thinking, oh, God, I don't recognize any of the surroundings. I should recognize I'm lost. I've got a knot forming in my stomach right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the thing is, that sort of thing happens to everybody. Yeah. I mean, if somebody says, I've never been lost in the bush, they're probably not people you and I are going to go hiking with. Yeah. Uh, they're not reliable. They're not trustworthy. They're evil. They're lying. Um, <laughs> they're, <laughs> I didn't want to say that. Anyway, <laughs> I'll say Good it. point. Um, I mean, that's probably the two most common ways people uh, end up off the trail something takes them distracts them i mean you could be step in a bee's nest and run screaming through the bush for five minutes and you've probably gone in about 100 meters and you don't know where you're at because you've lost your once you kind of lose the trail you're you've lost your orientation to where you are in the world and you're you're a helpless person so i guess stay on the trail and be observant And, and again I was talking earlier about trail reading skills. That's where the trail reading skills come in handy. You start to recognize where the the genuine trail is versus uh, what uh, path is trying to attract you in the wrong direction. Right. So that's pretty much where it sits. Yeah, that's that's fair. And I mean, like, um, I in my experience, my limited not search and rescue experience, I've noticed things like, you know, the the trail itself will usually, well, depending on where you are in the country and how trafficked it is, there might be some footprints, you know, like sort of fresh footprints, or there might be, you can clearly see that this continues on for quite a distance as opposed to just sort of petering out or I don't know, something like that. Or it's more consistent with what I've been hiking on or, or you know, would those kind of be signs of, <laughs> of being on the trail? Oh, yes, for yeah. sure. Uh, just be careful that the person you're following isn't going in a big circle. Mm, true. Okay. Okay. That's a that's a very good point. Realistically, people do leave the trail, mm-hmm. and if you're following somebody else's path, you're you're actually going to wherever they went, right. which may not be where you ultimately wanted to go. Right. So just something to keep in mind. Yeah. And uh, another thing I should point out, and I'm not sure what your experience is in in the Ontario area, but uh, you know, if you're walking out in the winter time and turn around and try to follow your own trail back out, you may find that it's quite difficult to find those footprints in the snow, mm. whether it's snowing or not. Mm. It's just the way people walk through the bush. Mm. And again, your ability to actually observe your own trail out. And it's something you could practice start going down a trail in the winter time and just leave the trail and then turn around you know about 15 minutes in and see just how easy it is to follow your trail back mm. out i think you'll be surprised to find that it requires a bit of skill really is that just because <laughs> yes it, it can sort of all blend together from a distance or it all looks the same the way the the daylight or lack of daylight is sh- uh, shining on your track can make mm. them quite difficult to to observe i mean you know, everybody thinks in the wintertime, if I walk into the bush, I can just follow my trail out. Right. And I think that people would be surprised if they 
kind of did it as a little sort of self-training exercise oh, wow. to discover that it's a little bit more challenging than, the, than that. Right. Okay. Well, that's good because, yeah, I feel like that is something where, where people might underestimate the difficulty and then get themselves into a dangerous situation. So, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so so I liked your example uh, about the, the bee's nest. So our hypothetical, we'll say that they're a hiker right now because I don't think you're likely to step on a bee's nest in your canoe um, in the middle of a lake. But so let's say our hypothetical hiker has stepped on a bee's nest and they've run 100 meters off trail. And after they're, they're done panicking about the bee's nest, they realize they're not sure which direction the trail is. And, you know, if they start walking this way, they might go another hundred meters from the trail. They, they really don't know. So they're, they're officially lost. This is the human psychology part that I've been so excited to, to talk about. <laughs> I mean, well, the whole conversation has been fun, but yeah, like what do hikers or, 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 or people who are lost, you know, in the backcountry or, or whatever, what do they tend to do when they're in this situation that makes them more likely to stay lost? And, you know, like what are some things that they should do to make it easier for them to be found? Okay, well, let's start with uh, the first part, okay. which is sort of how do I know I'm lost? Uh, I, I do have to say that many people will go through some degree of panic. And, you know, and if you're only typically 100, maybe 200 meters off of the trail, no matter how randomly you've pushed through the bush, you're not as far off the trail as you think you are. Yeah. I would, you know, sort of stop and take 10 or 20 deep breaths and just force myself to relax because you will panic. Mm -hmm. And people who panic tend to sometimes randomly run around or they uh, just don't do things that seem reasonable. Right. Uh, and I think the, the first step would be to recognize that you're not really lost yet. You're at the stage where you've left the trail, you can't find your way back, what am I going to do? Well, is it a frequently traveled trail? You could call for help. Mm. If you bought a whistle, uh, which are sold in every outdoor store, you can buy a Fox 40 whistle, it's the SAR standard across the country, blow on your whistle. <clears throat> And I imagine after about 15 or 20 minutes of blowing on your whistle, you'll get bored and want to try a different strategy. And one of those things is you can attempt to see if you can figure out the way you came in. Okay. You know, and as I mentioned, even in winter, it can be quite challenging to figure out the way you came in because it's not as easy as it sounds. Uh, I generally carry a roll of flagging tape with me, nice bright orange flagging tape. And I can walk through the bush with my compass, pick a direction. I think I went east, so I'm going to go back west. And I will figure perhaps I've gone maybe 100 meters off the trail. So I'm going to walk using my compass for about 100 meters west and flag my trail. If I come to the trail I've left, life is good. If I'm not on the trail, I can follow my flagging tape back to where I started and perhaps go in the opposite direction. Mm. So I can direction sample uh, un until I'm on back on my course. And, and quite often that'll work. Uh, if you're in an area where you can identify known landmarks, and I, and I don't know the Ontario situation, but... If you can identify known landmarks and you have a map and compass, 
you're on your way to triangulating your position and getting a rough idea of where you are on the trail. And from there, it shouldn't be a, a huge challenge to, to get out. Right. Um, if you're, well, for trail hikers, that, that probably covers what you'd likely do. I mean, if you're near a hill, you can walk to the top of the hill and see if you can get a sense of where you're at. Right. Uh, you know, sometimes that just makes life more miserable because you walk to the top of the hill and realize that the town or parking lot you just came from is 25 kilometers to the west. <laughs> and that's a, well, that's a long walk back to the town or the village. Yeah. And it still doesn't tell you where the trail is that you were on. So, you know, but at least at that point, you're definitely not lost. You just don't quite know how to get back on the trail. Okay. And, th and that's probably where I'd leave this discussion for people that are on trails uh, at. Uh, I mean, if you really don't know where you're at, stay where you're at until someone comes and grabs you and finds you. Because searchers will be on the trail that you were on because you left your trip plan saying, I'm going to follow this trail. If I'm not back by 7 o'clock tonight, call the RCMP and have them or the OPP and have them initiate a ground search. I'm in this area. I'm responsive. <clears throat> you know, I'll respond to calls or whatever. Right. And stay where you're at. Yeah. Does does it help search and rescue folks if, you know, somebody who's going out on a hike or, or a backpacking trip, when they leave their plan with somebody at home or, or whoever they leave it with, does it help if they say, you know, this is the color of my tent or this is the color of my coat or this is the color of my, my pack? Yes, you should absolutely do that. You know, and basically the number of people, like I say, in the group, mm. what you've got. And I would do my very best to make myself as visible as possible. Okay. You know, if you've got uh, anything at all that's colorful that you can tie to a tree or wave around. I mean, up here we recommend that people carry at a bare minimum a six by eight foot orange tarp, which you can oh. use for a variety of things. Right. Uh, if, if you're in an area that is lightly tree covered, any search aircraft will be looking for something like that. Yeah. Uh, if you can tie that on a tree, searchers can see it. Um, anything you can do to make noise. Um, there's lots of things you can do. I mean, generally speaking, when I'm out on a trip, I will have gone to my map mapped out the trail, even if it's an existing trail, I'll map it out, I'll load it into my GPS, and that's going to tell me if I'm on the trail, if I'm off the trail, and that's kind of my first go-to device. Yeah. I mean, worst case scenario is the batteries fail or the unit stops working or you lose it. Uh, but, I mean, GPS is something everybody should probably have with them and uh and know how to use and that's handy if you're alive and well and things are going good mm -hmm. you know so if if you actually get into a situation where you know where you're at but you just can't figure out how to get out of there yeah um, you can tell people what your location is right and if you're injured uh being able to tell people where you're at is important and I think as well, a lot of smartphones, you can buy GPS applications for them. So worst case totally. scenario is you write down your location, call your friend up and say, hey, 
I broke my leg or something terrible has happened. I was attacked by a, you know, an angry Canada goose and <laughs> I can't, I can't move. Please send help. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it says, it says something like about having redundancies, you know, having your GPS, having your phone, having your mapping compass. Yeah. Well, is there, is there anything else that, um, that you want to say or that we haven't addressed or do you think we've just covered it all pretty well? You know, it's a case of every part of Canada has fantastic opportunities and challenges for people who like to hike or canoe or paddle or hot air balloon or however you want to run your adventure. And I think that enjoying that adventure is a fantastic, phenomenal opportunity for people. And, you know, it just gets you out doing so many interesting things. And it doesn't take a whole lot of effort or practice to acquire the skills you need to to, to nav- confidently navigate a trail or follow a route. Uh, it, you know, you just have to be willing to do it. Uh, find some people who've got maybe a lot more experience than you do, tag along with them and, and learn the ropes. And, you know, once you've got to that stage, then if you want to do like real cross-country navigation where there are no trails, mm-hmm. I think you'll find it's uh, it's a, it's another adventure in and of itself. Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I think learning all of these these skills is very rewarding, especially when you get to actually apply them out in in the wild, <laughs> as it were. Yeah. Um, for sure. Yeah. And uh, okay, so maybe this is a curveball because I, I didn't um, flag that I was going to ask you this, but like, do you have any uh, do you have any kind of favorite? I mean, I I realize a lot of the time it's it's not really a positive thing when you're uh, when you're searching for somebody. But in the years that you've been doing search and rescue, do you have any sort of like favorite or standout stories where things haven't gone you know so badly or? Well, no, uh, the, the only one that comes to mind, it, you know, in terms of kind of a, a funny story, and it's an example of someone who wants to go out hiking, kind of uh, like the people we've been talking about, don't have a whole lot of experience, uh, but have picked a trip that is relatively safe, mm-hmm. meaning you, you probably can't get lost. You could get injured, but you can't get lost. They found a trail map and a couple of trail reports and the trail map says this is a two hour hike and off they go. They're going to be, they're going to leave on Saturday. They'll be back Saturday afternoon sometime. Life is good. And I get a phone call saying my friend hasn't shown up. We think he's in trouble and they send you a copy of the map. You look at the map and you think, oh my God, this is like at least a two day hike. Oh no. And, and, uh, well, you can, you know, just by looking at the map, you realize this is in my part of the country, this is like a two day hike. I don't know how anybody would have ever said this was a two hour hike. They, you know, I don't know how they, they calculated it. So you start thinking, okay, so the guy probably, uh, was smart enough to realize that when it got dark, I can't move forward. I'm just going to set it up, sit out for the night and I'll be cold and miserable, but I'll have learned a lesson. And sure enough, the guy shows up the next day about nine o'clock in the morning and he just spent the night outside. And you're oh thinking, boy. it's a great story. He'll have that for the rest of his life. Hopefully it'll kind of add to his uh, bag of skills and knowledge and stuff that he can take with him going forward. And for me, it meant that we didn't have to go out searching for somebody. We kind of figured out what was going on. And as it turned out, it was we were pretty much spot on. And 
thinking about what had happened to him. Yeah. But that's something that can happen to anybody. Oh, totally. You know, you just, you know, you, you, you don't realize the terrain is more challenging than you thought it was. Perhaps you're not as physically fit as you figured you were. Many people will take a, like a, a huge pack in the bush when they could have gotten by with like a 20 liter day pack Mm. and things just don't go right. Yeah. Um, But happy endings are, are kind of what (laughs) makes for a good story. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. The, yeah, yeah, no, that's good. And, and he, you didn't have to go out for, for him the next weekend. Uh, He didn't, he didn't just repeat the same mistake again. No, I think he actually, he uh, had a good learning experience from that. You know, and I certainly met people who've been in major park systems who have looked at the trail signs and thought that the trail sign, in terms of relating it to their map, wanted them to go right Mm -hmm. when the trail sign was taking them to a completely different area. And those are things that, you know, you do that a few times and you start to spend more time figuring out exactly where you are rather than where you think you are. Yeah. Yeah. No, no doubt. I do that. I do that. uh, I second guess myself often when I'm hiking. If I, you know, if I am hiking on a trail and I know that there's going to be a side trail to somewhere where I'm supposed to camp, I'll always be like, did I miss it and not realize it? Am I past there? Should I turn around? If I turn around, am I just going to be, you know, like, am I ever going to get there? It's all that. And I've been doing this solo since 2018 and I still like every time (laughs) I have this like internal dialogue. Well, that's good. You have that little sort of uh, um, prior event before you panic because you're lost. Yeah, yeah, for you sure. Know. But yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I've been down that road myself several times. You're walking down the trail and you think you, or you're daydreaming and mm-hmm. you just realize, God, I passed the, the turn off like a half an hour ago. I got to go all the way back. Mm-hmm. And then perhaps you don't find it and then self-doubt sets in and you want to take up pottery instead of hiking. <laughs> you know, I've had those moments. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I have two. You, mine are usually when it gets when it's super cold. Okay. It's it's thirty five below. You're on a snowmobile. The darn thing won't start, okay. even though you drove it to where you're at. You forgot to take your shovel. So building a winter survival shelter for the night is not going to be easy. The batteries on your sat phone have frozen, and on it goes. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. But you know, I'm still here to tell about it. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad. You know, <laughs> And it's comforting to know that everyone uh, has those. Well, maybe not everyone, but but even even somebody like you who who you know cut their teeth doing search and rescue in Yellowknife um, has these moments of self doubt and and panic and whatever. Well, yeah, yeah. I don't mind admitting my failures <laughs> or my weaknesses, but panic is a good thing. It gives you an appreciation for what you know uh, other people are going through, and if you've never panicked talking about it is interesting but you you don't really you can't you've never been in their shoes yeah you know yeah for sure oh, i was gonna say and the other thing is it's it's interesting too to be with a group of people where one or more of the people in the group panic mm. and you're sitting and you're kind of standing there going oh, why are these people panicking and they're panicking because they think they're lost and you have to kind of go through a process where you lead them to understand that in fact they're not lost they're actually having a really good time (laughs) you know they just haven't figured it out yet right that's i'll keep that one in my back pocket um well thank you so much for for you know making time for me responding to my my 
my call to action and um, sharing your expertise. All right. Yeah, it was fun chatting with you. And uh, thanks for uh, having me on your uh, podcast. I really enjoyed it.